more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Miriam Lipton. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU or interested in coming on the show, or you want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Marissa Williams from the School of Writing, Literature, and Film. Marissa wants to understand the movement of post-colonial Caribbean literature and how those ideas have pervaded society and influence today. Marissa is starting their master's degree and wants to explore the connection between historical racism in the French Caribbean and how that relates to the writings coming out of that location. To do this, Marissa wants to examine this modern-day literature through several lenses, which we will be dis- which we will be discussing in detail. So, hi, Marissa. Hi. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, like Miriam said, like most of my studies, well, I'm trying to enter uh, a phase of my studies that focuses on the Caribbean. Um, I started with mostly just uh, the African American experience, uh, but now I want to reach out into another geographic location that's affected by colonization as well. Okay, and so you are getting your degree in literature, right? From the, like we said, School of Writing. Literature and Film. And this is, I'm just sort of preempting this, but you said there was just one person in film. Yeah, it's my friend Andrew, who actually like fill out an application to do this. So hopefully we will uh, be getting to Andrew. (laughs) Only film student. There's not going to be any more next year either. So it's just him. Is it going to change to Swole? I hope not because swole, that's so disappointing. Yeah, swole. <laughs> that's so disappointing. But it's it's a, and we only have like two film professors too, so it's it's really small. The F in film is like minuscule. It's like a little. It's, F. Most, it's like it's like school, and then you know writing is like medium size W, and then the L is the biggest, and then the little F. That's and you're in the L. Yes, I'm in the L. The so, big L. Yes. Got it. Okay, and your advisor is Dr. Nabil Bordois. He's in French studies, so he's not a part of Swolf. Uh, I had to go outside of my department to find a thesis advisor, mostly because Swolf doesn't have professors who study postcolonial literature. Or uh, there's like one professor that does like 21st century uh, fantasy lit in science fiction. Uh, so he's on my committee as my third reader, but I went to Dr. Nabil Bourdois, and it's my first time working with him or even knowing of his existence. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but he's really he's really nice. He gave me a lot of a lot of books to read. I have like. 12 books from him to read, and then five more from another professor and five more from another. So, And, and we'll actually be getting to sort of your connection to sort of French Caribbean mm-hmm. and at the end, but I think that you guys have like a similar 
sort of connection there a little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. Spoiler. And and Adrian, I don't know if you want to. Adrian Adrian knows Doctor Bourdieu as well, but oh, cool. That's a slight slight different kind of situation there. Okay, so like we talked about in the in the opening, you are looking at different lenses, and you want to sort of understand these lenses, and you're just starting your master's work, mm-hmm. and so one of those lenses is monsters, yes, and which you're calling sort of this monstrosity of whiteness, mm-hmm. um, and to to sort of get into that. Um, there's this idea of abjection mm-hmm. that we that we have to sort of, I think, understand first. So can you explain what ab- abjection is? Yeah, so abjection or the abject is this um, pushing out something that is not normal and deemed by people who are considered normal. So they have the power to other, peop- other people, not capital O, other, other people. And so this comes in the form of monsters sometimes. I'm thinking like werewolves, vampires... Um, witches, zombies, these all can be racially coded or uh, gender coded or sexuality, like sexuality coded to be other. And so they're transformed into this non-humanist or inhumanist to be abjected by the norm. So people who are cisgendered, people who are white, uh, who are heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera, who can create normality and then push anyone who isn't normal to the margins. And, and I really liked when you were explaining to us this to us during the pre-interview mm-hmm. that you made this example of Sleepy Hollow um, oh, yeah. and Ichabod Crane and how Ichabod Crane is the object. And we don't really know what this otherness is, but just mm-hmm. that he's other. Right? Yeah. it's And it's mostly from his like description of his body. And I haven't seen like the Mickey Mouse cartoon, but I remember. I have. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. We should probably describe to the listeners uh, yeah. who yeah. Are in what Ichabod Crane is and the Headless Horseman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a short story by Washington Irving uh, called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And it, the main protagonist, or we could question if he's a protagonist, is Ichabod Crane. He comes to this small town. I think I think they're in Virginia, but it's somewhere you know, on the East Coast. Yeah, it's, right? you know, it's like colonial America. It's like they got their footing in and they're settling in. Uh, but he's a new person in this town and he's a teacher, I believe. And he comes to the town and he's like, you know, ready to do his thing. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna make this place better. He falls in love with one of the local women there who's well, like, well-renowned in the community. She's beautiful. She's the belle of the ball, essentially. And then there's the antagonist, it seems, who's supposed to be engaged to this woman. I don't remember their names, of course, but I remember reading it, um, I wanna say my sophomore year in undergrad. And we did an activity where we like compared Ichabod's uh, physical description to that of the masculine antagonist hmm. and Ichabod is like he has like long limbs that are like gangly and like wiggly and like just other like other in terms of just he not just like looks normal. different he than looks everyone terrifying. else yeah, different than everyone else yeah yeah and in the cartoon he's he's kind of like skeletony yeah sort of? he's just like scrawny and sickly and then he also has like uh, dramatic, like elongated, like noses, ears, like eyes. Like he's just not normal. And considering what the other townsfolks look like, right? So we did that activity, and I was like, oh, so he's the other. He's the abject in the sense that he is not the norm. And you know this from his physical description, but even more so as he starts interacting with the town members, he becomes more ostracized. Like they clearly do not want him there. Mm-hmm. And so in the story, they come up with the Headless Horseman to drive him out. So you would think from this being like a horror short story that the monster would be the Headless Horseman. 
But in the end of the story, when you figure out that the Headless Horseman isn't real, it's just a costume for uh, that male antagonist, again, who plays him. It was just a ploy to get Ichabod out of the town because mm. he was the real monster that was threatening the town, not the Headless Horseman. Yeah, that's like a like a twist on this trope that mm-hmm. like um, who we think is actually the villain, so to speak, is mm-hmm. not actually the villain in yeah. the story. I feel like there was another example you gave mm-hmm. us of this kind of like twist on the trope, which oh. uh, is is Frankenstein. Yes, yes. I think often, especially in Hollywood depictions of Frankenstein, you have Frankenstein's monster, like Dr. Frankenstein, right, uh, is the monster. He's called a monster anyway. Uh, but in the whole philosophy of the novel, the monster is actually the doctor, Dr. Frankenstein himself, who, tor- who tries to play God in the sense of creating humanity. And that's something that obviously goes wrong because the creature he created is then ran out of town. He's inhuman in the sense that there's nothing recognizable of him that could be human. He's made out of dead body parts. So how can you make, you can't make a human from human, I guess. Right. Yeah. But like, again, like, but the town folk sees him as the monster. And so, and Frankenstein's monster, like, understands that lack of inhumanity, that lack of humanity, and then starts to like, look in within himself and then realize that it was Dr. Frankenstein that made him this way, who therefore then is the monster, the villain or a sorts. Right. And in both of these examples, the, these people are, are white. Yeah. Right. And this mm-hmm. is sort of like there's white terror in whiteness. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of like this idea of this theme that you're trying to look at, which is the monstrosity of whiteness? Yeah. Even more so, um, when I was preparing my mini thesis in fall term, I consulted this one work. I'm going to have to look it up and hopefully I could just send it to you guys and put it in like the tagline for <laughs> yeah. the podcast. But it was about, it, it, it sparked this idea of the monstrosity of whiteness for me. Um, it was about um, the phenomenon of like mass shootings led by like white uh, American men in the United States and the sort of violence that's associated with whiteness. And that's where the monstrosity comes from. Mm-hmm. And that relates to like colonialism and post-colonial studies because colonialism is violent and so is post-colonialism. And so... When I think about the monstrosity of whiteness in relation to my studies, it's more about how has the colonized viewed the colonizer, and it's mostly as a villain, as a monster, as something to fear. Yeah, and we'll definitely be getting into sort of this idea of colonizing and um, in just a second, but I think that I, I want to just jump back on this idea of guns mm-hmm. oh. because there's this idea of masculinity mm-hmm. as sort of being the scary part of guns, mm-hmm. but it seems like that you're trying to take it as its whiteness yeah. in general, right? Yeah. It's more like the guns is the tool, and I think that the violence, again, is associated with whiteness as, you know, a conqueror, as a, actually just ma- mostly as a conqueror. I think there's so many moments, of course, in history. You could start with Christopher Columbus, who was a conqueror and committed mass atrocities to the indigenous people. Right, and here. he had guns. Right. So it's like it's a tool of the oppressor rather than the violence of the oppressor. It's just a way for them to enact Mm. violence, but they are the ones still committing the violence. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, actually. So uh, this is a deep cut, but Mm -hmm. I'm I'm actually thinking of the Childish Gambino video of this is america this is america yes. where if you if you do like a uh for the listeners if you watch that that music video and you do like a slow motion mm-hmm. of what's happening when 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 they use the gun they take care of the gun with 
well, they care for the gun mm-hmm. much more so than the than the person and people who were just shot. Right. So it's this really interesting dichotomy of, you know, the person that shot is on the ground and you, the, the camera just leaves them in the background mm-hmm. versus uh, I think someone comes with like a white like cloth and someone carefully puts the gun on the white cloth and they like delicately move this, you know, gun away from the scene. Mm-hmm. So it's just um, like reverence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a great towards word for the it. guns. Yeah. It, it, it as a tool though uh-huh. yeah yeah i think that has to do a lot with our american identity being like the second amendment is your, your right to bear arms and that might speak more to that but again it comes back again to colonialism where again it's a tool of the oppressor how else are you going to you know quiet the indigenous people here or quiet the enslaved people you've brought here or um sort of support the legislation that you know disfranchise millions of people of color on their way to this country immigrating or brought here or already here and then told that this isn't their land or things like that but it definitely uh resonates in that way where you care more about the tool of oppression than those who are oppressed most definitely and i think it's important now for us to sort of address what what is colonialism Mm -hmm. um and post-colonialism um i know that this is a hard thing to define and just sort of do your best in terms of how it relates to your research and what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, colonization is uh, a huge historical movement. Yeah. I don't know exactly where we can say when it started because before there was, you know, European countries who went to Africa or islands in Asia or the Caribbean, um, there was globalization. So Europeans and other people in Africa, Asia, uh, the Caribbean, South America, came across one another in terms of trade, economic benefits, and things like that. Um, But there was a shift in terms of power where Europeans were able to conquer lands that were already um, owned by other people or inhabited by other people. Yeah, Yeah, so like in the United States, when Europeans from England uh, or Germany or France or not Switzerland, Denmark, um, traveled to the United States. Again, there was indigenous people here, but they claimed the land as theirs, although there was other people set, settled here. Um, and so can we define, so this is sort of like maybe the 1700s, a sort of oh, maybe yeah, something like yeah, that, right? I would say that. I think that's best for the America. I'm not sure about like Africa. Right, or, of course. But and, I think that is fair to say that, you know, the 1700s, it's an early phenomenon. It's something that happened. Uh, 1700s, maybe... Maybe a slightly earlier, sixteen something. something. I'm not a historian, but right. <laughs> and I am, but not of this this era. Uh, um, <laughs> perfect, perfect. So we know what we're talking great about. Great match here. Yeah, and then so then when we started, we talked about how you're kind of looking at post-colonial. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think that perhaps that's a harder thing, maybe also to define. Mm-hmm. Post-colonialism is about the legacy of colonization and the legacy of colonialism in terms of economic, social, historical influences. So not the end of colonialism, necessarily. Yes, it's just like, what came next? Well, and it's it's such a funny thing in like literary and moments and theories. It's just like we just put post in front of anything. Like there's modernism and then there's postmodernism. We don't know what either of those means. I don't because I don't study it. Right. But it's just like it's a thing that we just do. We just put post and then it's just like... Well, we can't name any a new a something new there because it always has influences from something before. So we just put post in front of it. So we're like, it connects to this, but it's not the same thing. Like it's an evolution from yes. those circumstances, but it is yes. not inherently a completely different set of circumstances because yes. there are you know a priorities there and that you can't disentangle from today. Correct, and that's part of what you're doing is you're looking at this colonial heritage mm-hmm. in the French Caribbean and how 
movements, which mm-hmm. we're about to get to, how movements within the French Caribbean have like influenced or affected the work today, specifically how it like manifests in horror kind of things, right? Yes. Is that a correct sort of like understanding of what you do or you're, you're attempting to do? Yeah. yeah 100%. Okay, great. <laughs> okay, so one of the sort of main or really important things that have come out of this region is this idea of creoleness. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us what what is Creole or what is a Creole, something like this? Yeah. So for me, since I am Creole, I was born in New Orleans um, and my family is mostly from New Orleans. So I'm just Creole biologically and culturally. Uh, But for me, in the way that I understand it, it's just a mix of multiple identities. And so being from New Orleans, the history of it as a port city um, is that Spanish, French, indigenous and African uh, people were there. African in terms of the enslaved people that were brought to America, indigenous meaning the people who were there before, uh, and then Spanish and French, um, the people who were coming to the place to sell or to um, inhabit it and things like that. So it's just a sort of historical melting pot identity Uh where you, for me, I have ancestry in indigenous, uh, African, white, I'm not too sure, French, most likely French, Um, But like I have a mixture of identities, of ethnic identities. And so Creole was just a word that people of that identity came up with to explain who they are. And then in terms of my study, I started reading in praise of Creoleness and it defines Creoleness as this neither. So this has to do mostly with French colonialism. So it's neither French nor African, mostly because because of colonization, uh, most enslaved people brought to the French Car- uh, to the Caribbean uh, and then were colonized by France were denied their African ancestry, uh, were dispossessed from it due to slavery and colonization, but they were still brought under, raised under, educated under French colonialism. So French ideas, French morals, all these other French things, but they were never going to be French because they were black. And so they're sort of disconnected from a French identity and an African identity, For but sure. they are both at the same time. So what else can you call yourself? We could call ourselves Creole. And that's what they came up with. Right. And so the, and Creole is like, you were telling us that Creole is your ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. And that you are, your race is black. Yes. And that's sort of how you've got to this. And, and I think your advisor was born in New Orleans. Am I correct? Or he's something? been there before, but he's, I think he was born in Algeria. Oh, okay. But, but has a sort of French connection, yes. African connection. Yeah, because Algeria this... was colonized by the French. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's Ooh. sort of this like kindred spirits maybe or mm-hmm. not. Um, okay, and there there have been this this formation of the idea of creoleness. Mm-hmm. There were people at the time uh, who were kind of looking at this and understanding this. I think you mentioned to us there was a psychiatrist. Yes, France, Fran, France, France Fanon. Fanon. Yes. What did he do? So, like you said, he's a, a Martinican. I, I thought Haitian for a second, but I get. Both <laughs> islands confused. But they're both Francophone yes. countries. So that's <laughs> so that's that's mostly why. But yeah, no, uh, he was Martinican. He was one of his mentors was Amé Cisser, who was also Martinique, uh, also is from Martinique. Uh, but Fanon is well known for his work, Black Skin, White Mask, and The Wretched of the Earth. But he sort of studied mostly the violence of colonialism. And this again, like his mentor Amé Cisser, who thought about um, his identity. Cr- crisis, I guess, uh, and started the movement of negritude, which is about, again, that reclaiming of identity, that Africanness, that Frenchness, all of it together, none of it at all, 
that sort of confusion amalgamation of like what am I who am I and things like that but Fanon was uh, very heavily concerned with understanding the violence of colonialism how it perpetuated in his life and others and in terms of the relationship between France and his uh, French colonies right because he was educated in Martinique he was educated in, yeah in France in, or he was educated yeah. in France but he's a French speaker mm-hmm. but he's you know black racial mm-hmm. racially and then goes to France mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, well, the French are like, well, you're yeah. not us. Yeah. So <laughs> he's like, well, what am I? And he's like, uh, okay, um, well, let, let's write about it. <laughs> yeah, you. He you, wrote so. Yeah, you told us he he made this phrase of called like neither but both. Yeah, I, which, I don't that know. Really resonate something like yeah, that. That really yeah. resonated with me in terms of encapsulating this idea of creolness. Yeah, or like how that that can like be per, permeate through the literature. And ideas of people who are like embracing this as yeah. their identity. It's I like a liminal. It's sort of space. It's so odd because it's and it, this is why I'm so interested in because it it relates to me so much because like I don't talk to my family about like you know our ethnicity like for us it's enough for us to be black and to know that we're black and to have a culture in our blackness. But then to understand our creolness in terms of history, it's kind of violent. It's kind of hard to you know, understand and hold on to this, like, mixture of a past. Like, you're not sure, like, if it, if, you know, if I have white ancestors, how do you, like, you know, deal with the fact that in some time period they were, you know, superior and they, you know, beat down other black people and then I'm black now and then you think about, like, dang, (laughs) that's a lot. So it's just... I think that's where like Fanon comes in and like understanding again this violence that's you know sort of attached to your identity no matter what. And I think I want to just give a shout out to what's going to be happening in a few weeks at mm. Grad Inspire because Marissa is actually going to be a speaker on Grad Inspire, which is happening on May twelfth. Is that correct, Adrian? I yes. Think so. And uh, you're actually going to be talking more about this kind of concept mm-hmm. when we get to Grad Inspire. So for listeners that want to sort of understand more about this connection between a sort of racism and this feeling of horror and embracing the genre and anything of like that, listen to Marissa's speech. It's going to be Zoom, Zoom, I think. Uh, we, we will offer Zoom, but you can find out plenty more if you type in uh, Grad Inspire Oregon State. Uh, there's flyers already out. Uh, there's going to be food there as well, so we encourage you to come in person. It will be in the MU basement. Yes, from fa- at 5 p.m., I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, that's just a little spoiler of what's to come with Marissa's speech or talk uh, when we do that mm-hmm. in a couple weeks. Yes. Um, okay, so I, I want to return to Fanon because... Mm-hmm. I imagine he was one of the first to to really disentangle the, or I, I imagine he might be one of the first to disentangle the. I am black, but not black enough. I am, <laughs> I, I am black outwardly, but not black enough to feel like I still have a connection to Africa. But mm-hmm. I and I am French because I'm educated French, but the French don't actually accept me, even mm-hmm. though I was educated in France. Mm-hmm. So this is the odd othering of I am all of these identities, mm-hmm. yet none at the same time. Hence, mm-hmm. creolness kind of comes to fill the void would you say yeah yeah for me too personally and I think like other for other creole people it definitely does because you know although you're not these things and you are these things you still have a culture that comes from this history and this unknowing this void that's inside of you you still can fill it with something and that filling is still creole so it's 
an answer to the void. Yes. Well, and people may look at like you, for example, and they think, oh, if she's you know, she's black. That means mm-hmm. X, Y and Z. But yeah. for you, you're like, well, but I actually have all this other stuff that's going on. Like mm-hmm. I'm from a place that has this different kind of mixture of things. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how, you know, it can take back this kind of perception that people may have. Yeah. When like they I, immediately see you. I'm also often mistaken to be biracial and I am not. Both of my parents are black, but again, my, interesting. yeah, right. My mom, like my great, my grandmother is half black and half white. And my great grandmother is half indigenous, half black. And so then my great grandmother, of course, is indigenous. And like my two, my great grandfather, my great great grandfather are white. They're also dead. But the point is that they're white. And so that's why I look light skinned. And that's why I can be mistaken for biracial. But I just tell people that I got a long (laughs) racial ethnic history that I don't even know about. But I do know that I have white family, I have white cousins and things like that. And so it's, that's why I just say I'm Creole. Well, and it makes sense. And the part where you're just saying like, I have this history that I don't know about. I think that's like the key because you don't know. Mm -hmm. And what you do know is like that you are a mix and therefore this Creoleness like really helps. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. It helps like knowing that I am Creole just calms me down when it comes to like understanding my identity because it was just like I know I'm not racial but people aren't going to believe me because I'm light skin I know <laughs> it's crazy. like I, I mean I think I would know myself more than you will right. but <laughs> that's that's the They're thing like, that no, I dealt biracial. with and it's like no I, I know what I am I know that I am black and I'm figuring out this part behind me like you know great grandparents and it was like oh we're Creole we're you know we're like a mix of multiple things and uh-huh. that's an identity as well as any other identity, so. Yeah, I think that I think that that's really interesting that people try to. Yeah, it's racist. Race is a very hard thing to talk about. So, in yeah. terms of like history, like it's just there's a lot. There's a lot of mixing, of course, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so this this idea of studying this kind of literature mm-hmm. wasn't maybe always apparent for you Mm-mm. and what how what's your like you're here at osu now studying you're getting a master's in what we said the big l literature yes. in swolf <laughs> <laughs> um but how did you get here what was you where did you do your undergrad so i did my undergrad in english literature at ball state university university uh chirp chirp in muncie indiana chirp chirp yes that's our logo <laughs> <laughs> is that like go beeves yeah yeah, we just um, say chirp, chirp, and then we make a little bird sign with our hands. Yeah, yeah. If, if yeah. anyone can see, Marissa's like doing a little bird sign. Yes, because we're cardinals. That's we're the cardinals. Ah, uh, so. okay, okay. No, I say it every time because I love it. Um, but yeah, no, I went. <laughs> but there. also, go beeves. <laughs> <laughs> go beeves now. Go beeves now. Yeah. Uh, no, so I went there for my uh, degree in uh, literature, and then I minored in religious studies. Uh, but then I didn't know what I was going to study at all. Like, I know I love books. That's a duh. Um, but then, like. In terms of what, like, what am I going to do with this? Like, what am I really interested in? I had no clue until I read the novel Beloved by Toni Morrison. Which is a, is it Pulitzer Prize or Nobel Laureate? Something big. Nobel? Nobel? Pulitzer? We'll look it up. It could be both because she is that great to win both awards. Uh, RIP to an angel. Um, But no, I read that and then I started becoming more interested in black studies uh, we didn't have an African-American studies program until after I left, of course. So I just was just doing religious studies and literature. If I did have the opportunity to go back, I would study Arabic and African-American studies. But 
say la vie. <laughs> so uh, I did that. And then in my senior year, I reread Beloved in a class called uh, Ghosts and Cultural Hauntings. And that opened the door to horror for me because uh, Beloved can be seen as both a historical fiction novel and a horror novel. And I, I was first met with it as a historical fiction. So it was just like uh, based on the story of Margaret Garner, who I will say more about in my right, in the, Grand Inspire. Yeah. So, uh, but and then the horror part was the ghost beloved. That's one of the main protagonists. And then I realized that, you know, you can make a whole essay out of just horror and fiction and trauma and slavery. And I was like, oh, this is this is really interesting. And then I started watching more scary movies. I started uh, reading more books by black authors and trying to understand this relationship between horror and trauma and the African diaspora. And that all just started with Beloved. And then now I'm here studying post-colonial literature, horror and trauma in it, but mostly in relation to the African diaspora. Yeah, and I, and we will be ta- you will be talking about this, I think, in your Grad Inspire, yes. but just how like the movie is considered yeah it's considered horror, a horror movie and the book is considered like just a fiction yeah historical fiction because it is it's based off of someone who was real but it's such a weird book and movie like difference like i haven't watched the movie because i'm too afraid of it being bad but <laughs> i'm i'm really afraid because i love the book so much um but yeah, it's supposed to be, it's a horror movie whenever you look it up on Google, but it's a historical fiction book when you look it up on Google too. So it's like, but they're both the same thing. But I think it it, it points to the fact that like there is horror embedded in this yes. and caked in and that's yes. sort of like where you're trying to sort of look at it and mm-hmm. analyze these kinds of things. Yep. Um, okay. And so I think that there's like another layer that we can pull back, peel back here in terms of like why this like why books and horror mm-hmm. kind of like fit in your life really well mm-hmm. and and I think that that kind of has to do with before you even got to college in mm-hmm. in your upbringing so do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about yeah uh so both of my parents in the army they're 20 years over now they're they said they were going to retire at 20 years but <laughs> the benefits still, just have, keep going up as yes, they continue so it's good for my younger brother so he gets to have a free college too but um uh, yeah so I like I said I was born in New Orleans so just listeners like count on your fingers so new orleans louisiana to north carolina to alabama to kansas to texas and then i went to school in indiana so there's a six now and then in my sophomore year of college my parents were both given two duty two different duty stations my mom in south carolina which i stayed with with her and my dad in virginia so now that's eight states and then uh, after the Army decided to be so nice and put my family back together, we went back to Texas, and then now I'm in Oregon. So that's 10 different places I've lived. And so each time uh, moving to another place, especially when I was younger, I would always consult books in terms of like a safe haven, uh-huh. libraries, school libraries, public libraries. I like collected library cards <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> I had one from Kansas. Uh, I think I had one from Alabama, but it, like got lost. But Alabama, Kansas, Texas, Indiana, I had them all. I even have one now here in Corvallis. So I like an actual, yeah, actual library card. Yeah, I like love paper the money. That stuff still exists. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. What? <laughs> so actually, I, I want to ask. Uh, you said that Beloved is one of your favorite novels, mm-hmm. and that's an understatement because you have old, like how many different versions of the novel Beloved, right. and how many different library cards do you have? Which do you have more of? 
beloved. <laughs> I, have, I have six copies of the novel. Right, like you just go around. If you see it, you buy it. I buy it, yeah. Just like if, it's, if it's one I don't have, I buy it. Got it's it. automatic. <laughs> no like question. A, a, it could be like a hundred dollars. I would buy it. Duh. It could be signed by Toni Morrison. Oh God, that'd be great. So, listeners, if you want to make yes. your way into Marissa's heart, yes, buy yes Toni Morrison's beloved and give it <laughs> as a gift. I'll like. Oh, I gotta post like which ones I have, so like they'll know. Yeah, I'll and do we that. and yeah. we have a link to Marissa's Instagram. It's, yes, it's M Williams. Yeah. is that right? So like yeah. Marissa Williams without the W yeah. in front. M yeah. dot Williams. Yeah. On Instagram, so you can like see and maybe maybe Marissa. I actually have three of them posted on there. So oh, okay, yeah, so That's you can see which because I I found them and I I got I went to Pals. Pals is, yeah. for those who don't know is a giant bookstore in yes. in Portland. Yeah. It's huge. I think it's the biggest independent bookstore mm-hmm. in the United States. It is. Was that an exciting thing? You're like, yes. oh, I went twice. <laughs> I did not know it was the biggest independent bookstore in the United States. Yeah, I yeah. think I think it is. There's a map. Yeah. That you can get of the store. It's huge, but it's so beautiful. I went to all my other literature friends, of course, and we all geeked out. Like that's like your yeah. like Mecca. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It was it was great. I really wish there was like a, a bookstore, but a, like a mall and it could just be a, a mall of books. But no. Yeah. So books, uh, safe haven. <laughs> I went to the library a lot as a kid. I would it sounds sad. And I promise you, I wasn't sad. But I would eat lunch in the library sometimes. Well, you found solace in books. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really make friends that quickly. I didn't make them until, like, spring. Well, and it's hard It's hard to make friends, yeah. like, for anyone, even if they're not moving to a new mm-hmm. place. And you're, like, moving. Like, almost every, like, two to four years. Yeah. Yeah. So. But no, I, I always just loved reading books. And it was just, like, quiet. And it sometimes, you know, again, moving around a lot. Although I am alone, I just, you know, the, I don't know. It was just, it was nice to pick up a book and go to the library and have quiet time. And no one's bothering me in terms of like being new, especially when you're like, people pester you about your schedule, your name, where you're from. And I'm just like, I'm just trying to eat my chicken nuggets right. and drink my milk. <laughs> like I want to, I just want quiet right now. Also shout out to the American uh, lunch school. Cafeteria 11 a.m. Chicken nuggets, milk, <laughs> mac and cheese. Where pizza is a vegetable. Yes. I think, and a breakfast. Yeah. I think that to me, when I hear this story, I think that, you know, you found solace in books. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a friend, a way for you to kind of escape. But then that escapism led you to Toni Morrison's Beloved, where mm. you're like, wait a second. There are books that speak to things that I can actually relate to. Because yes. you were telling us that you used to really read a lot of fantasy and you still mm-hmm. read fantasy, but that was what you were kind of reading before. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of getting the like lost in the story. Yeah. And then it's this idea of finding books that like actually have more of a personal connection mm-hmm. to yourself. And that is that kind of like a true sort of story of how you feel like you've gotten to where you are today, maybe? Yeah, I definitely remember when I read Beloved, I like cried so hard. <laughs> but it was mostly because I've felt for like the first time from reading a book, I guess the other time would have been like The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. But Beloved did more than that. And there's because, a, that's a movie, Young Adult. Yeah, yeah. And book I, that I, I cry at that movie too. I cry a lot when reading. Um <laughs> But when I when I read Beloved, and there was a moment in the book where Baby Suggs, um, the grandmother figure, she and calls. She, is that that's Oprah Winfrey in the movie? Oprah Winfrey plays Sethda. I don't oh. know who plays Baby Suggs. I okay. never I never seen the movie. Well, I Oprah's don't in think the movie. I will. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah. is. But um, she calls everyone in this uh, community in Cincinnati to this forest called the Clearing, and she allows them to like feel their pain and express their emotion, their joy. 
like I said, their pain, their sadness. And like that moment just made me bawl my eyes out. I just, because I never, like I had, I had trouble a lot, especially again, moving around. You just like feel like you can't find anyone to speak to. And so when I read that and I realized, oh God, you know, I have so much to say, so much to give, so much emotion to let out. And when I read that, I was just like, oh my God, books can be like anything and everything. And they speak to you and they comfort you and they understand you better than anyone else can. Beloved did that for me. So after that, I just became heavily invested in literature. Yeah, I mean, and it's paying it's paying dividends because you were saying that here at OSU, mm-hmm. all master's students are funded. Yes, in the SWOLF program, yeah. So that's, we get tuition remission, we get a job, and that's actually a, a nice gig. Like, really, yeah. Shout out to our program again because I think that's a that's really rare mm-hmm. for master's programs. I know in the master's program in my department, that's not funded. I don't mm-hmm. know about Adrian. Uh, all of our stuff is funded, but a brief shout out to our coalition of graduate employee union, who yes. on Friday was just doing uh, a, a big thing because the university. Uh, is laughably going to cut all of our wages. Um, cut the wages? Yeah. Yeah. So we did a rally on Friday. Oh, I'm part of the union, but I should have known. Yeah. So for for all, all you undergrads out there, uh, it is really hard to make ends meet as a graduate student, mm. and the university wants to cut our pay even still. Uh, so yeah, you might see us being begrudgingly angry at the university, and this is probably why. Anyways, at the very least, we are funded. Yes. To some degree. Yeah, that's that's good because <laughs> I'm, I'm here. Uh, yeah, I'm sure other programs weren't funded and so this is a kind of a rare thing in your field i like remember like i got my acceptance letters from duquesne and they were like we can't give you money because of covid and i was like what does that have to do yeah with me getting money (laughs) but okay because that was my other option i was like oh because i have apparently my great grandmother like her aunt or something lives in pennsylvania and i was like who and so i was just interested in like meeting family that i'd never met so but then uh yeah i got my i think oregon state was probably like my fifth acceptance maybe like they came in pretty late and when they were like oh we'll offer you a job and you know you have an assistantship your tuition remission we pay 99 percent of the fees i was like say less yeah. <laughs> i'm coming and so i moved to oregon <laughs> and here you are yeah and uh okay so you have developed this idea that you want to look at french caribbean <laughs> literature and understand this like through line of colonialism and how it's affecting the writing today Mm -hmm. and you're still sort of searching for your subject book yes but you were explaining to us we had the in the pre-interview about like your process and how you even got Mm -hmm. into this and i think it'd be really interesting if listeners could understand how you know literature or how you specifically get into uh your process so what is what is your process most of the time i like i'm always coming across like media um just for fun and then at some point, I, like, notice a problem in it. So one of the things, like, I'm very new to getting into scary movies, but I am obsessed with Candyman. I recently got a tattoo dedicated for it. Yeah, I've it. seen it. It's really so, cool. Yes, it's I really, love really it so cool. much. Um, but I was watching, I watched the Candyman Legacy, uh, the 2021 one, with my family in the, during the summer. Yeah, and that's a, Jordan, summer. that's a Jordan Peele. Yeah, yeah. Film. He wrote that. It's directed by Nia DaCosta, and it's incredible. So I, I'm watching it in the theater with my friend, my family and things like that. And in comparison to the original one in 1992, I love the 2021 one so much because it, again, like, again, with this, like, this monster idea, you know, like, Candyman is this 
ghost figure who you know kills people when you say his name five times in the mirror he appears and then slashes you with his hook and he's a black man yes yes and so in the 1992 one his whole story is that um he was like mutilated by this white mob during it was during slavery so probably like the 1800s and things like that but he felt he he wasn't enslaved his father and himself were both free and he was a painter and so he was hired by white rich families to paint portraits of themselves he fell in love with one of the women of this family and then they she got pregnant and her father found out her father sent a mob chasing after him he was his hand was cut off replaced with the hook he was smeared with honey and stung by bees and then they burned him alive i think right because that's like the cover of the yeah or the poster is yeah. like him covered with bees or something mm-hmm. right so and then the 2021 one like stays with that but then takes it and ta- and thinks about it as a sort of legacy of generational trauma where Candyman is created through violence committed by um white people or like government uh authorities like police officers or something like that but it's a legacy that has continued because of the legacy of slavery essentially that's what I saw it as but I saw a problem in comparing both of the films that, you know, the first depiction of this man, it's this, like, brutal attacker to this white grad student who's, like, trying to understand the legacy itself. But he only kills, like, black characters in the film. And it's like, I mean, if I was chased down by a mob, like, I just I just wouldn't attack someone who was, like, innocent in that, you know? Like, someone who wasn't present at that time at all. I just, I'd be mad at the mob. But right, the it just dead. seems like too stereotypically yeah, racist exactly or like and that. i was just like i hate this and then the newest one it was like no we're gonna you know talk about like you know the monster like how are they a victim in this like he didn't choose to become a monster he was just like i don't know you could say that his like rage or his you know lost love you know extended his life or something but he wasn't deciding to i don't know be around for hundreds of years to haunt people and kill them when they call him in a mirror and then in the in the new one, they take that and they're like, no, there's something deeper here. There's something that can be like relate to a black audience rather than continually stereotype black men as like criminals or villains or things like that. And I saw that when I was watching it and I just like fell in love. Just like this is the best thing I've ever seen. But most of the time before I start writing something, like I said, I just come across anything. I just read it or I watch it and then I go something's off. What is it? <laughs> and then I just, I, I figure it out in some way or I pull together like an argument. And I like, I'm such a nerd in this way. <laughs> I look up like examples. I rewatch things. And then I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, this is interesting. And I like how they did this. And then this is like clearly attached to this theme about, you know, this thing and this thing. And then now I have an essay to write, but I don't actually write essays for fun. Yeah. Like, Cause you were, you were telling us that you often well, like with Candyman, mm-hmm. or like the problem with Candyman was mm-hmm. that in the first version, you know, the the monster was the blackness. Yeah, it was and like... And that was like problematic for you. Yeah. And in fact, I, I was looking up just Googling the 92 film, and you know how Google like pre comes up with like search questions? Mm-hmm. And one of them was, is Candyman racist? So like people are definitely watching that and having similar kind of like, ugh, Yeah, because it's, it. it's, it's again that like that object being racialized that just makes me very uncomfortable to think of the monster as the racial other is just like racist right so you know it's it's a 
it's a deliberate choice to make him the villain when he was the victim in the first place. Right. And so then when you've sort of developed this problem and mm-hmm. you were telling us about your writing style is that you try to ask questions to yourself, like, does this character get a good, good ending? Yeah. You know, how are they represented? Yeah. Um, and that it, you told us that you're not really interested in kind of like the 92 version, not really discussing stereotypes because mm-hmm. like, you know, that exists. Yeah. It's like it's it's to me, it's overdone, played out to just continuously, you know, look at moments that are clearly racist and say, like, this is racist and this is why. Because I know that. I know how to identify racism. I've, you know, experienced it. Um, but I'm more con- interested in, you know, subverting those stereotypes. Like, what can we say about Candyman instead? Like, when you, again, are the victim to a sort of brutality that's inescapable, even after death. Like, he's still, it's now committing the violence. And is that then a reflection of the violence committed to him? Is that why he does it? Like asking those types of questions, I think are more important than continuously perpetuating stereotypes. Right. So like so I'm not going against the grain. Yeah. We just have a few minutes here, but you had mentioned the movie Gone Girl and how like this is like a twist on yes. that same kind of trope where it's a woman who's using using this, this idea of victimhood mm-hmm. to her advantage yes. to sort of be a villain. Yeah, it's like different than the whole damsel damsel in the stress right. where she can see herself as a damsel and understand that people will also see herself there and then use that to manipulate people and get what she wants. I think that's way more interesting than, you know, constantly reading or analyzing other figures of damsels or things like that. Like I'm more interested in a woman who <laughs> can manipulate and take back the power even if it's in a bad way. But is it for her? question mark right right dun, sucks, dun, dun, basically dun. yeah so <laughs> yeah any way that we can shift the power dynamic it makes things more interesting definitely, definitely. yeah for 100%. sure percent for sure um well I, I we're coming to the end here and i think that this was just super awesome to have you mm-hmm. really appreciate this i think if you're we would like to see where your this ends up yes and again for people that want to get more into the idea of your personal connection with uh, racism and this horror and how you get into it listen to grad inspire and just google grad inspire and it'll be on may 12th mm-hmm. and uh, we have two traditions on yes. the show so the first tradition is we ask for a piece of advice this can be to sort of anyone someone specific group of people uh, and if you could please give us that piece of advice, tell us who it's to and what is it? Uh, I want to say this is for anyone, especially in our time where capitalism is working our butts off. Uh, but when you are tired, just go to sleep. And I just mean <laughs> that your body knows yourself better than you do. Don't try to stay up all night. Don't try to give yourself extra work when it's the weekend. Rest is just as important than what breathing blinking you know it's it's natural don't deny yourself something that's going to help you in the long run i actually think that's really good advice um i have students sometimes who try to do work you know get extensions and do work really late yep. um and it's often sometimes it's fine but oftentimes it's not substantially better i think no. than is your brain Taking just can't time, work yeah I, my students do the same thing i get like Emails like 11, 11.30. When something's due at 11.59? Yes, asking for an extension. <laughs> and I'm like, you could, you could do this beforehand. I know it's hard to you know, manage time, but the best thing you could do for yourself, I even tell my students, hey, if you, don't, if you can't make it to class because you're tired, tell me, and we're good. Like, I'm not going to, it's a 10 a.m. class I teach, so it's like, 
that's early for undergrads for some reason. For some people, that's yeah. And I'm like, y'all don't even get it. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I'm very on the whole take a nap, no matter what time, take a nap. Yeah, so it's great. So you must have telepathically told me this because this afternoon I I'm not a nap taker because I, I I'm almost never a nap taker. I usually get my my good seven eight mm. hours though, right? Um, but this this afternoon. I was just like, I can't, no, I'm done. And I took a nap in the sun, and it was fantastic. There so you go. can recommend napping. <laughs> <laughs> Naps in the sun are blessed. It, it was because it was sunny. It was real fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, the, the last tradition we have is we uh, outro you with a song. So what song did you choose and why? I chose What an Experience by Janelle Monae. Um, I just think it's such a nice, relaxing jam. I like whenever it comes Ooh, on. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Whenever it like comes on and like shuffle on my phone, I just start like swaying because it's just it's melodic and it's just fun. It's like lighthearted and just lovely. So yeah. I just want to end up with something lighthearted and lovely. And Marissa's swaying already to it. So <laughs> well, here it is. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank and you. And we are looking forward to having you on God Inspire on May twelfth. And with that, here is Janelle Monet with their song "What an Experience." We party every night Then we all just walk off in the rain Even angels fly away And our wings just keep getting in the way Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.